Wepa. I got a fever. And the only prescription is more cowbell. So you know how to walk. You know how to dance. You ever dance with the devil in the pale moonlight? Welcome to another episode of This Week in Salsa. Today on the show, I had recently seen an excellent show called Latin Music in the USA. This was on PBS, and they did a really great job of talking about the history of salsa and the history of Latin music in general and where all this comes from. And I found it to be extremely informative, and I think that every salsa dancer should watch this so they get a better understanding of where all this really does come from. So, uh, I will definitely link to that documentary on the show notes there in the blog post, and you'll be able to see that link to that. It's in YouTube, so it's free. You can see part one through, I think, part six. There's actually multiple sections. So there is episode one, which is about bridges, which talks about from 1930 up through 1970. And then the second part is for Fania time, so Salsa coming in about... 1970 to 1980, and then it goes on with others, uh, Tejano and uh, Reggaeton and some other aspects. So I figure we can make this into a couple of different podcast episodes where we talk about these different episodes, give you kind of the high-level items so you can get an understanding of what they talk about. But I'm really hoping that after listening to this episode that you just go on to YouTube, go on to the This Week in Salsa website, look up the link, and just watch it. Just sit down there and watch it. It's entertaining especially if you like documentaries, a very well-done documentary. So with that being said, let's talk about some of the things in this first episode of Latin Music in the USA. The episode title, again, is called Bridges. It's this idea of bridges between the old Latin sounds and the new Latin sounds. That is bridges between Cuba, Puerto Rico, and the United States, mainly in New York. They focus a lot on New York during this first episode, and actually in the second episode as well. But uh, a couple of people I want to introduce you to as important people that I think you should know when it comes to Latin music and how it evolved in the United States. First and foremost is this guy Mario Bauza. So this guy came from Cuba, as did a lot of the people that we'll talk about here today. And Mario was a clarinetist. He also um, was really into jazz. And he came from Cuba, came over, lived in New York, lived in Harlem, uh, East Harlem. And at that time in Cuba, actually in Havana, there was a lot of prejudice. If you were dark-skinned in Havana, it was tough to get ahead, also in music. And one of the things he commented on was when he moved to New York, that basically went away. Yes, there was prejudice. This was before uh, segregation was no longer around, so segregation was still there in the 30s. But it was very different. You could still get ahead. You could still make a successful career as someone with dark skin uh, in New York, especially in Harlem in the 1930s. And... In Harlem, he started a band. He really excelled there in Harlem. And about 1931, the first big Cuban hit came out. It's called El Manicedo. I think that translates to the peanut salesman. It's an interesting title, interesting music there. And it was kind of a surprise hit. People weren't necessarily expecting that coming in from, from Cuba. But that, uh, along with a couple of other songs, launched the rumba dance craze of the 1930s. And that also made Latin bands kind of a mainstay in a lot of these clubs, not only in Harlem, but in New York in general. So you started to see more of these Latin bands as a staple of these nightclubs. You also had these people, now in the 1930s, jazz was, was big, 
And a lot of people were into jazz, and you started to see this molding of jazz and Afro-Cuban, which we'll talk about in a sec. After Mario started to experience some success in New York, he wanted to recruit some of his other friends and family from Cuba to make better, bigger, better bands. One of the first people that he recruited was his brother-in-law, who goes by the nickname Machito. And Machito started this band in the 1930s called Machito and his Afro-Cubans. That was the name of the band. And that may not seem like anything important, but actually, historically, it's super important because this was the first time publicly that the word Afro-Cuban and, and this Afro-Cuban acknowledgement that the music that they played came in some way from Africa was ever really said publicly. Before that, no one really acknowledged it. So this was the first time, and they put it right in people's faces, actually putting it in the title of the band and his Afro-Cubans. That was revolutionary in and of itself. Now, when they started this band, they had a growing amount of Latin people in New York. And that really helped them both to cull talent from the local area, but also people to listen to the music. And actually, at this time, a lot of Puerto Ricans were coming into New York, into what they call El Barrio, is what it, it was called. Uh, so about 30,000 Puerto Ricans were moved in there in the 30s. When they performed a lot of these songs, they were performing for two crowds. They were performing for what you would think of as their people, right? People of Latin descent, and also the white people. <laughs> it really was. So while white people listen to this music and they're like, oh, it's good, it, it sounds good, they also were putting in little Easter eggs, I like to call them, things that if you were in the know, if you spoke Spanish, you would understand certain things. Like, for instance, one of Machito's songs, uh, in the beginning he puts, I'm going to butcher this, but he puts Abura Boya. He puts that in the beginning, which is a native greeting, a traditional greeting of uh, where he's from. And you would never know that if you were white. You would just be like, oh, that's a funny word to put in the beginning. But uh, these little Easter eggs that if you're in the know, you get better understanding from the music. And Machito and his Afro-Cubans, they continued to grow. One of their big songs was Tanda. And this is one of these themes that if you hear, you'll probably recognize it if you listen to salsa music. I certainly did. It's got some jazz improv aspects over the top of Afro-Cuban grooves. Uh, actually, Mario describes it as... Uh, lemon meringue pie, where you have different layers, but they really thought of it like that, putting the jazz on the top, Afro-Cuban rhythms on the bottom, and all into one. Tanga, buroboya. When all of this was going on, the key, in my opinion, was not just this happening among Latin people, but getting some, some leaders in non-Latin circles to listen to this music, understand this music, and bring it into the real, real mainstream. And one of, if not the first person in the musical sense to do that is Dizzy Gillespie. And he's 
one of these guys that was extremely well-respected in jazz. He was pretty much the founder of bebop. Um, but he listened to this. He came to a couple of uh, Machito's performances, and he was just blown away. And he actually started to incorporate some of the conga players into his performances as well. And Chano, uh, Chano was, uh, sorry, Chano Poso was one of these guys that he incorporated into his performances. Extremely talented guy. One of their combined performances, right? So Dizzy Gillespie, uh, who was jazz, and then Chano Poso. They combined to create one of their biggest hits. Again, some song that you're definitely going to recognize if you listen to it, called Manteca. And actually, there are uh, there are songs I've heard redoing this, probably the same beat as well. this again was happening during the 30s pretty much and the 40s continued this but in the 50s is when the mambo came around and the guy who gets a lot of the credit for this is Perez Prado uh, this was not a guy from New York this was elsewhere he actually formed a lot out in uh in the west coast but technically if we're talking about timing wise one of the first people actually the first mambo song that identified itself as a mambo was in the late 30s with Orestes Lopez and his brother Cachao if you know of Cachao and they had this first title that was a mambo um others picked this up and besides what was going on in the west coast with Perez Prado there was also a lot going on in the east coast in New York who they wouldn't even have really known who Perez was so in New York, when it comes to mambo in the 50s, the four, late 40s, early 50s, there were what we would call the big three. And the big three were Machito and his Afro-Cubans, who were the elderly statesmen you could think of them as at this time. They've been around for a while, right? They started in the late 30s, so they've been around for a while. Then you have Tito Rodriguez, who was from El Barrio, and also Tito Puente. So two Puerto Ricans who started these bands that became extremely successful. And these three guys kind of battled it out every night. So you had Machito, Tito, Puente, and Tito Rodriguez that all had their own locations that they would play at, and they would kind of battle for supremacy of the mambo scene. And during this time, when mambo started to grow, the people who danced to it were become called a mambo nicks. So that was the phrase, the terminology used for people who came and were really obsessed with the dance and with the music. Uh, Tito Puente, obviously a lot of you know who Tito Puente is, extremely influential. His, I found this part of the documentary very interesting, that he was really inspired not by Latin music, but by swing. And this guy Gene Krupa, if you know Gene, he, this guy Gene, he was kind of the first drummer who really popularized the drum as a soloist instrument. Before that, the drum was always in the background. And Tito Puente did the same thing for the timbales. So he took this inspiration from Dean 
and really revolutionized the timbales. So they became a solo instrument as well. And, and he's obviously known for the timbales. When you think of timbales, you think of Tito Puente. One of the big reasons that Mambo grew was because there was this dance associated with it. And this association, well, where do you dance? In the 50s, the place to be was the Palladium. And I've always heard salsa people talk about the Palladium. I know um, Adolfo in the Cochea, he's one of these guys who's really obsessed with, uh, with Palladium era music. Uh, there are a lot of other talented salseros that are as well. But it was really interesting because you got to think about the timeline here. Think about the 50s. And the 50s, this is before integration. Um, there was still segregation. There was still uh, kind of a lack of sexual revolution as well. So people weren't really having sex. That's why the Palladium was huge, right? You had people from all different races, ethnicities, creeds that came together on the dance floor in the Palladium in New York. And that was the beginning of integration. That was the beginning of people dancing with each other. In fact, uh, one of the best examples of the Palladium is Cuban Pete and Millie Donet. They were one of the first couples that performed at the Palladium, and they were interracial. Uh, Millie was Italian-American, and Cuban Pete was uh, Puerto Rican from El Barrio. So seeing those two dance and performances together, that was re- very racy at the time. But dancing was, was definitely it, right? It was extremely popular. You had uh, famous celebrities that came out to see and to dance as well, and a lot of very talented people as well. You have um, some of these... Well, basically they said a lot of the Jews went out to this as well. Among many other ethnicities, a lot of Jewish people came out to this club as well. In the documentary, they say it's probably because of the sex. They wanted to have sex. (laughs) So this was their only outlet to do that. But what was interesting is that they got exposed to mambo and to Latin music at the Palladium in the 50s. And then a lot of these Jewish people, they had influences later on in the 60s and the 70s in influencing different art forms by incorporating Latin rhythms into the music. Some good examples of that in the early rock days with the Beatles. Um, Day Tripper is based off of a Latin song. A lot of these are based off of Latin cha-cha rhythms. If you count along the cha-cha rhythms to those, you can see where it lines up. Uh, you also have the Drifters, uh, Louie Louie, which I'll try to link up some of these in the song overlay so you can listen to it. But it's really striking how similar these are. But Louie Louie was based off of a Rene Tosette. Day Tripper was based off of a Machito song, but when you hear them, they really do line up perfectly. At the same time, Americans had no idea. When they listened to these songs, they had no idea that a lot of it was being powered by these underlying Latin rhythms, but thankful to the uh, these Jewish Americans who were exposed to this in the Palladium to incorporate that back in. Uh, you also had uh, one of these people at the Palladium was Bill Graham. Now, Bill Graham, he is the guy who started the Fillmore, and the Fillmore is the famous palladium-esque spot over in San Francisco that launched a lot of the music out of the late 60s and early 70s. But Bill Graham started at Palladium as well. Uh, some of the other big performers were Augie Rodriguez and Margo. And they. And this was really fascinating, was that before these two, this idea of 
turns, slides, and tricks in performances and dancing really didn't exist. They innovated a lot of that into Latin music with that. So if you look up any of their performances, you'll see it looks very familiar to what I see, what I'm exposed to when I go to congresses, when I go to performances and see them dance. Uh, it's very similar. This all happened during the 50s. So you had the palladium growth. You had increasing interest in Latin music. West Side Story is a good example of that as well. So Hollywood starting to commercialize things. And things are growing. But then, unfortunately, what happened, if you know your American history, in the early 60s was the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, was also where we shut off Cuba from the United States. And that was really detrimental for the growth of Latin music because you are not only not allowing the very talented individuals from Cuba into America. Again, think about Machito, Mario, um, a lot of people who came in to start that early uh, Latin music scene they now no longer can really get into America nearly as easily. But also, psychologically, right? If you like Latin music after they shut off Cuba, you are thought of seen as supporting Fidel Castro and supporting communism. So it was really tricky to want to be an American, but also to listen to Latin music during that time. So those are the main summary points that really jumped out to me during this documentary. I'm really not doing it justice. What you want to do is you want to go to thisweekinsalsa.com, go to this blog post, and watch the documentary. I think every salsa dancer should have an understanding of this. And in fact, I'd urge you, if you're someone who organizes events, or even if you don't, start with this event. Start with organizing a showing of this documentary to your local salsa community. I think that having a better understanding of the history, understanding where the music and the dance come from, just makes us better dancers and a better understanding of the culture. And the way that we grow this, that is the salsa community, is by understanding our culture and understanding where we come from as a people so that we can continue to grow that in the future. But as I said, this is part one of a multiple part series. There are a couple of hours of this uh, PBS documentary. They do a great job with it. We're going to analyze further shows as well and give kind of high level items so you can know what to expect. But with that being said, um, thank you for joining us today. And if you want to leave any feedback, post on uh, a comment on the blog post. Also give us a review in iTunes. We always appreciate that. Uh, send us a message on Facebook or leave us a tweet. Que te agarres